In the book of Deuteronomy, this book, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, Deutero 2 and Namas Law, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy is structured in such a way, not just in the very name itself, the second giving of the law, but in the contents of the book, there is a consistent theme of remembrance. The importance of the church, the body of Christ, and the people of God, and Deuteronomy, Israel, the people of God, to remember what the Lord has given them. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's 15 different instances in which God tells His people, remember, remember. In that, even the name of Deuteronomy, what it is, it gives us, I think, two insights that we're going to see in our text of Psalm 119, the letter Zion, this morning. Number one, that you and I as human beings, even as followers of Yahweh, followers of the Lord by Jesus Christ, that we can have a tendency to forget, a tendency to forget the workings and the word of the Lord our God. But secondly, when we remember, when we do stop and remember the things of the Lord, the word of the Lord, that there is a blessing that comes with that. There is this strength that takes place in our life, this closeness with God, if we will but slow down Stop and remember, regardless of your situation, regardless of the hardship that you find yourself in, or even a sweet season, that the Word of God functions in a way as a harness for our life, like for a a rock climber. This harness, this particular harness that we're going to notice from the Word of God this morning is that God gives us is His Word, and His Word functions as a harness with three aspects of remembrance. If you and I, regardless of our season of life, right now we'll stop and remember what the Word of God does for us. The Word of God functions as a type of harness to pull us out of a well that we might find ourselves in, at the bottom of a well, wondering, what am I going to do next? What does this season of life have for me? What is my next step that we talk about so often? The Word of God functions as a gift of God. If we'll just stop and remember what the Word of God does for us. So if you have your Bibles, flip over with us to Psalm 119, beginning in verse 49, as we look at this Hebrew letter, Zion. As a reminder, Psalm 119 is this beautiful alphabet prayer, this beautiful alphabet acrostic in which the Hebrew alphabet is set apart for us, each of the 22 letters. In each of the eight verses, poetic paragraphs called strophes, each of those eight verses begins with that Hebrew letter. That gives us insight into knowing God more intimately and personally, according to His Word. Now, let's begin as we notice these three aspects of remembrance that you and I are called to take upon our lives, regardless of our season, regardless of the hardship we might face that the psalmist brings us face to face with. And the first is this, that you and I are called to remember that the Lord remembers His promises. You and I are called to remember that the Lord remembers His promises. It sounds redundant, but it's very helpful. We're called to remember that the Lord remembers His promises. Verse 49 and 50. From the ESV, the psalmist writes, Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise, it gives me life. Your promise, it gives me life. The psalmist begins first by drawing comfort from praying to and remembering the God who remembers. Do you see that from the very beginning? 
he goes to the Lord in prayer. Remember your word to your servant. And in praying to the Lord, requesting of the Lord that the Lord would remember his promises, remember his word that he's given to him as a servant, as a person after the Lord's heart, after a person who aims to know the Lord, he reminds himself, of course the Lord remembers his promises. One of the greatest comforts that you and I can have in our life in the midst of when we don't know what is going to happen next what will tomorrow bring? What does today bring? Did I mess up so bad that I'm, in, I'm completely done for? Is to remember that the Lord remembers. To remember that the Lord remembers. And he prays at the very beginning, remember your word to your servant, Lord. Now, certainly we know that God is God. He isn't like human beings who forget things, who overwhelm their schedule or forget to put it in their day planner. The Lord is not like us. He doesn't get stuck in traffic on North Street going to a different location. You know you've been there. Much agony. Still, I was told North Street got better when the college students left. That is not true so far. That is false information. But the Lord isn't like that where he doesn't time things appropriately and, he, and therefore he forgets or he gets overwhelmed. We know that's true, don't we? Theologically, we know God's all-powerful and all-knowing. We know these things. But when we find ourselves in a situation of hardship, do we remember those things? The psalmist remembers, ah, even though I'm overwhelmed, even though the situation is confounding. And as the psalm goes on, he'll give us more little nuggets about the situation he's in. He remembers that the Lord is the one who remembers. And so in his prayer, just as we've taken this challenge, and I encourage you to jump in with us beginning this week as we, as we look forward to praying through the next set of eight verses. As you pray and you pray back the word of God to God, there is a confidence and an assurance that you have as you pray. And so the psalmist likewise, Lord, remember your word to your servant. He knows that the Lord is the one who remembers. What a blessing that you and I have when we remember that the Lord remembers. Now, we know that people are not like that. We forget things all the time. Every one of us does. What a terrible feeling to feel forgotten. Older people can feel forgotten very easily. I'm, I'm thankful. Bob, I'm thankful that you're here. If you, uh, I didn't ask permission to embarrass Bob this morning, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think I can outrun him. That's why. But Bob would sit right here all semester, all year long. He sat over here. If you remember in the fall, our services were getting really, really crowded. We asked people if they one thing, consider sitting towards the front. And Bob right away did so. We went to the two services, and as the semester went on, we had more room. But he stayed sitting up here. He was an encouragement. And Bob has had various procedures that need to be done. And so he hasn't been able to be here with us for several, several weeks. And yet, Last week you were here, and this week you're here, and you're an encouragement to me. But one thing I found in pastoral ministry is older brothers and sisters, as their health begins to fail them at different seasons, there is a very real reality. The real question that comes in is, have I been forgotten? Have I been forgotten? What a terrible feeling to have as an adult. Have I been forgotten? Likewise, as children, what a terrible thing for children to feel like, have I been forgotten? Perhaps you can relate to that feeling of, has everybody moved on without me? Have I been forgotten? So many people appreciated the uh, parents and technology seminar that Bobby Austin led for us. And one of the things that as I was speaking with one of the couples that took that course, that seminar, was the awareness that children often feel forgotten as their parents, even though in the same room, are staring at their screen the whole time. And parents, therefore, feel, the children feel forgotten. 
the amount of time that we have to invest in our young ones, and if you're a middle school or high school student, the time that you have to invest in your parent for the season that you have to remind them, to take this ministry upon yourself to remind them that the Lord remembers them by His Word. What a ministry you have. The Lord has given you a ministry to the people in your home, whether it's a roommate or a family member, to remind them, to remind your grandkids, grandkids, to remind your grandparents that the Lord remembers them. He is the God of remembrance. He has not forgotten. As the psalmist prays, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Time is fleeting. I saw this uh, various information of how long children will be in the home. When a child's born, they'll be in the home for 936 weeks until a child graduates, give or take. When they exit preschool, you have 780 weeks left. Sixth grade, you have 364 weeks left. Ninth grade, 208 weeks left. Eleventh grade, 104 weeks left. Your time in which you have them in the home to impact your children and, and children, the time you have to impact your parents, to remind them of the Lord who remembers His Word, is trickling away. What will you do with it? What will you do with the relationships? The people that you have in your workplace, they're not going to be there forever. You're not going to be there forever. What will you do with your time? Will you remind them as the psalmist prays, remember that the Lord remembers His Word. The ministry of comfort that you can have to them by the goodness of the Spirit, by remembering of this truth as the psalmist prays, will give them comfort if they know the Lord. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise, it gives me life. The psalmist is going through a season of affliction, a season of hardship. I really like the New American, the New English translation. Both translate this in such a way that the promise, the Word of God, is what has revived him. The ESV says that your promise, it gives me life. See, the Word of God serves a purpose in our lives. That's part of what makes Scripture, Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's self-authoritative. It's self-authenticating is this word that scholars use. It's true because in itself it is God-breathed or breathed out by God. And it performs a function. It shapes us. It molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. And in Romans 15, we see that exact same thing stated. In Romans 15, let me just read it for you. Scripture serves a purpose to give us endurance and encouragement. Listen to this, Romans 15, 4 through 5. Paul writes and he says, For whatever was written in former days, the Scriptures, the Old Testament writings, the Hebrew writings, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and according with Christ Jesus. And of course, the text continues on. But the Word of God performs a function by the Holy Spirit of God who indwells us as believers and likewise has inspired this Word. The prophets of old were moved by the Spirit to write what the Lord ordained them to write and this Word performs a function in our lives, that when you and I stop and remember the Word, remember the Lord who remembers His Word, and we spend time in the Word of God, it performs a function of encouragement and edification that nothing else in this world can do. So regardless of your season you have right now, remember that the Lord remembers His promises. And secondly, maybe the second point of that harness that the Lord gives us in seasons of hardship. Remember, secondly, in verses 51 and 52, that the Lord's word is timeless in comparison to the boastful's babbling. 
Remember that the Lord's word, it is timeless. He'll refer to it as the rules from of old. The word is timeless in comparison to the boastful's babbling. 51 and 52. The insolence, so we get a little more insight into a situation. It's a, it's a personal situation. It deals with people. The insolent, they utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Oh, 51 and 52, the parallelism, it, it, it's beautiful. The insolent utterly deride me. This is, depending on your translation, the arrogant or the proud. The picture is that the insolent ones, he's going to call them the wicked ones in coming verses. The insolent, the arrogant, the proud, the wicked. Here's the distinction. He, as a servant of God, has the Word of God as his final authority. His final authority when push comes to shove isn't simply tradition. It's not how he grew up. It's not what mama said when I was growing up. It's not how I feel. It's not how the culture feels. It's not what feels good. When push comes to shove, his final authority is that of the Word of God. That's his comfort. That's his roots. And he's not leaving them. He's steadfast upon them. And on the other side, those people that are described as arrogant or proud or the wicked, their foundation is anything else but the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord. Anything else that you can fill in the blank, that's their foundation. And his decision to live by the word of God causes them, it inflames upon them, if you will, this utterly deriding remarks or actions toward him. And what's beautiful here is, look at 51, the insolent, they utterly deride me, they harass me, my way, they mock my way, but I do not turn away from your law. So the adversity that he senses, the fact that people aren't celebrating and championing that he's building his life upon the Scriptures, the Word of God, by the Spirit, it doesn't cause him to say, forget it, I'm out of here. It causes him to do what? to resolve, but I do not turn away from your law. He doubles down in the Word. He doesn't abandon the Word because he didn't come to the Word of God to be accepted by the way of the world. That's not why he plays the game. He came for a totally different reason. Uh, there's a man named Ray Comfort. He's an evangelist, and he shares an example that I think summarizes this very well. Imagine, if you will, that you and I got on the plane. It's a big plane. We get on the plane and we're flying and we're halfway through our flight. And immediately the captain gets on suddenly and says, listen, I've got bad news. The plane is going down. Half of you didn't hear it because you had your earplugs in. So you take him out. What did they say? And he says again, the, the plane is going to crash. We don't have enough fuel to get to where we need to go. The plane is going to crash. We begin to panic. And he says, but listen, there's good news. Below your seat, is a parachute. Take it and put it on. Immediately, you decide, you take out the parachute and you put it on, you buckle it, you strap it, you pull it tight and you sit there. And you're still sitting in your seat, so you're sitting forward. You're just waiting. You're maybe reading the instructions on the parachute to make sure you didn't do it upside down. But you're waiting. 
And while you're sitting there for a while, you notice the people beside you and in front of you, they don't put their parachutes on. Only you did. And they begin to make fun of you. 10, 15 minutes pass, they begin to make fun of you, and they say, you look like a fool. We're on an airplane. You don't really believe him, do you? This plane's not going to crash. You look ridiculous. Is that going to make you take off the parachute and throw it on the ground? No. You didn't put the parachute on to be accepted by the people sitting around you. You put the parachute on because it's the only thing that will save you. It's true. Regardless of the mocking of those that sit around you, you didn't put it on to be embraced by them. So you keep it on. Fifteen minutes pass and you're sitting in this weird position awkwardly on your back. It's hurting your lower back. You begin to ache. Does that make you take off the parachute and throw it on the ground? Of course not. You didn't put the parachute on for an easier ride. You put the parachute on because it's true, because it's good, it's effective to do exactly what it's called and designed and given to do. The Word of God in your and I life, in our lives, when we begin to face adversity or hardship, our response and what we do with the Word of God, what we do with the voice of the shepherd, often reflects how we truly approached him to begin with. Many people, as they go through adversity, will be tempted to say, you know what, I don't want this book. Because they came to Jesus, or they came thinking, this will get me out of something. Or it's just fire insurance for my life. Or they came and said, you know what, I just wanted an easier life. Things are harder. I came for the contacts. This is making it worse. They didn't come to Jesus for Jesus. They came to Jesus to use Jesus. They didn't come to the Word of God to know the Lord. They came to use the Word of God to make their life a little easier. And the psalmist, in his hardship, he says, The insolent utterly derived me, but I do not turn away from your law. He didn't come to the goodness of the Word of God for an easier flight. He came to know the Lord, his maker and sustainer, his Savior, his Redeemer. That's why we come to Christ. That's why we worship Him. We gather to worship Him, not for an easy life. As we gather together on Sunday mornings as a church body, we gather to give Him praise because He's worthy of praise. And believers all across the world gather together in the face of persecution to gather together of different generations to worship the King, Lord Jesus Christ, not because it's easy, not because it's exciting, not because it makes their life easier, but because He is worthy of worship. He's their designer and sustainer, and they are a people bought with a price for the glory of Jesus Christ, a people for His own possession. That's what the psalmist understands in the midst of hardship. He remembers that the Lord's Word is timeless in comparison to the boastful's babbling. You see, their statements are quick, they're short. But when he remembers the word of God in verse 52, when I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort. They're unchanging. They're unchanging. I take comfort, O oh Lord. So when suffering or hardship or scoffing come, let us grip tighter to the word of the Lord, and we will find true comfort. We will find true peace only given by the Spirit of God, by His Word. The psalmist remembers that the Lord's Word is timeless. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God will last forever. And this is a gift 
this too shall pass. This too shall pass. But the Word of God will not pass away. It will accomplish exactly what it's designed to do, even in the life of his sheep. Now, if I was over with Jenny and I was teaching the preschoolers right now, I would use the example of a bubble machine. A bubble machine. Bubbles are captivating for a moment. The, the boastful babbling of the proud, those that have a different foundation than the Word of God, are like bubbles. They're captivating for a moment. They have an alluring form. But in just a few seconds, all they are left with is a messy residue. It has no staying power. But the word of the Lord are the ways of old. Unchanging, sure, and sufficient. Remember, thirdly, that the Lord will sustain you by His Word. When wickedness abounds, the Lord will sustain you by His Word. Now, there's two particular components of this sustenance that I want to dive into. First is in verse 53 and 54. So we remember that the Lord will sustain you and I, His people, all that will turn from sin and death and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, regardless of what you've done or have had done to you, you have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, purity in Jesus Christ. It's yours in Jesus Christ. The one who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, arose again, ascended to heaven. By his glory has sent the Spirit. This in the church calendar year, we call this today would be Pentecost, the remembrance compared to when we observed Easter. This is the time in which the Spirit of God was poured out upon His people. And by the Spirit of God, we walk through our life and we build our life according and, and fueled, again, by the goodness of His Word. The Spirit speaks in complementary fashion to His Word. And we see here that He sustains us to sing even when we feel like sojourners or strangers. 53 and 54, He sustains us to sing even when we feel like sojourners. This is pretty beautiful, 53 and 54. He says, the psalmist, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of sojourning. The psalmist looks at those in the world who live with a different foundation. Therefore, they live with ill regard to the Word of God. Remember, anything possible will become their foundation. Primarily, they will become their foundation. They will become their guides. They will become their final authorities. And he looks at those the way of the world, and he is filled, he's sparked with rage or indignation, hot indignation. He's grieved at their offense toward God. I want to unpack this. I think this is important to take time to think about. Why would the psalmist be offended at the way of the wicked when the way of the wicked is towards Yahweh, the Lord? Why would that offend him such? Imagine that somebody went up to a bride on her wedding day and said, listen, thank you for inviting me to your wedding. And you look beautiful. But I want you to know that I think 
your husband is terrible, pathetic, a liar, unjust, and quite frankly, repulsive. But I got you this gift for your wedding. I'll see you when you get back from your honeymoon. It'll be great. How should the bride respond in that situation? You think that's just going to roll off the back? The two have become as one. The followers of Yahweh, the servants of Yahweh, that's what he calls himself there back in the first verse. And repeatedly through this psalm, he is burned when he sees the foolishness and the insulting way of life of anyone that has a foundation different than their sustainer and creator. To offend the Lord is to offend the servant because their life is so intertwined. The word of the Lord is woven so tightly into the fabric of the servant's life that to insult and to rebel actively against the Lord is in the same way to insult the servant. And as we looked at last week, as we looked at the words of Jesus Christ to his disciples, they'll persecute you, but they're doing so in me, because of me in Matthew 5. They're woven together, and the psalmist here draws this out. He has rage because of the wicked who forsake the law of God, which is good and reflects his character and attributes. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Now, perhaps your mind works in such a way that you say, but what about the people that are just apathetic towards the things of God? Maybe you know somebody in your life, a coworker, a friend, a family member, that they're not overly aggressive towards Christianity or the Scriptures. They simply are apathetic. They might check on a survey, I am none. Not a none, but I'm none. Like I'm none in that don't want anything to do with any of those categories. You say, but what about that person? That person's not offensive. They take a view that says, you know what, I can live however I want. You live how you want. We'll try and keep the laws, but let's just stay in our own corner and get along. That person is actively 24-7, second by second, living in rebellion against the creator and sustainer of their life. Their rule as their final authority is itself an act of treason against the God who sustains them and knows them as He created them. Sin is always personal because sin is always against the personal God. If that's you here this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, He loves sinners like us so much that He would send Jesus Christ to bear your burden upon the cross, to pay your grievous debt, even the grievous debt of claimed apathy towards the things of God. He's fueled with hot indignation, but the text doesn't stop there. In the midst of His broken, hot indignation that seizes Him, what's He do? This is such a beautiful combination of verses in verse 54. The statutes of God, they sustain him to sing. The statutes of God, the Word of God, in the midst of hardship, the midst of difficulty, what do they do? They sustain him to sing. He's fueled with rage. I don't know about you, 
but I don't usually accumulate my mind or gathering together of corporate worship with people coming in filled with rage. That is not a worship service that I want to see. Stephen just starts, I'm not talking like a style, I'm just going to stop. That would have been a foolish thing to say. I'm just imagining him screaming and let's go. I just didn't make any sense in my head. One of those things I shouldn't have said ever. You would have never thought less of me then. But look at the juxtaposition of verses. The way of the wicked fills me with hot indignation, and yet your word, your statutes, they fuel me to sing. You and I are to follow the way of the psalmist. That means we can never allow a point in our life to say, look how broken the world is. Look at how hard things are for me. The Lord does not get my praise. We will never be in a season of life that justifies robbing God of the praise that He is due. doesn't mean we just put a smile on our faces and go, Swallow down grief or swallow down anger. That's not what we do. But the Word of God is so steadfast and true. The Lord knows you and I so intimately and personally. As we build our lives increasingly, individually and corporately as a church body, according to His Word for His purposes through our life, even when the the world begins and continues to fall apart seemingly, oh, we are able to sing to the Lord Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. Even when I feel like a stranger, I will sing. Flip over to Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. If you have a Pewback Bible, that's page 978. Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. The brokenness of man, society, and culture is never a legitimate excuse for you and I not to sing out to the Lord, not to cry out to the Lord. Outside forces will never be that case. And listen, if you watch the news for any period of time, you probably don't walk away joyful. You probably walk away saying, what is going to happen next? Oh, no. That mindset is never justifiable before God to not sing His praises. We are not bound by the way of the world that says, what's going to happen next? There's no purpose here. When society begins to fall apart increasingly, guess what we do? We know our Lord who's sovereign above all governments. We know our Lord and we know him by his statutes. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul says basically the same thing that the psalmist says, but in a few more verses. So the psalmist is grieved by the wickedness of those around him, and yet he, by the word of God, is literally praising God, a biblically loaded, gospel-focused songs to the Lord. That's what the statutes, the scriptures of the Lord give us. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, Paul says, even in the face of the world seeming to go crazy. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Because the days are what? Evil. So because the days are evil, you make the best use of the time. Don't just sit around mourning that the days are evil. The Word tells you it's going to be that way. Verse 17, therefore, therefore, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. I'm interested. What's the will of the Lord? Verse 18. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. We looked at that text in previous sermons in Galatians. Addressing each other how? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to the God to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. As the world begins to be increasingly, ever continually filled with evil ways, we're not to join in the ways of the world, but the ways of the world will be ever contrasted by the people of God who live their life addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spirit-filled songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts. The more wicked the world becomes, the more unwise the world becomes, the more the servants of the Lord praise the Lord, and the more contrastive it becomes. And by God's grace, the way of the world will look and say, why do you behave like that? Why do you still sing? And to which we share the gospel, our true hope, because we remember. We remember He sustains us to sing even when we feel like sojourners or strangers. And finally, 55 and 56, He sustains us because we are His and He is ours. He sustains us because we are His and He is ours. That's good news for us this morning. He sustains us because we are His and He is ours. Maybe you limped in here this morning on only the fumes of your faith. He sustains you because you are His and He is yours. And as a church body, he is ours. 55 and 56. Oh, the psalmist writes, what a contrast. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, Yahweh, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. The confidence that the psalmist has in the season of waiting is that he knows the name of Yahweh. He knows the name of the Lord. So at what time does he say in verse 55 he's he's calling out to the Lord? Is it the middle of the day? It's at night. At night. When things are silent, quiet, you're there in your room by yourself, left to your thoughts, left to the ticking of the clock and your anxiety. To whom does the psalmist turn? I remember your name in the night, O Lord. He pauses, and he remembers Yahweh. He doesn't just have to cry out to some force out there, some cosmic power. He cries out to Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord, the maker and sustainer, his rock and his redeemer. His majesty on high. That's who he calls out to in the dead of night. The Lord is his hope. So you, my fellow believer, the dead of night comes. Call out to the name of the Lord. Be like the psalmist. Say out loud, wait, Lord, wait. I remember your name. I know you, and you know me. And that's a scary thing if you know you, right? You know me, and I'm yours, and you're mine. 
I know your name, and you know my name, and my name is written upon your son. And it's written in the the Lamb's book of life. I know you, and you know me. Oh, and the psalmist is comforted in the night. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and I keep your law. This is his desire. I want to be with you. I want to be on this foundation. I see the world doing this on other foundations. Even if it seems prosperous for a moment, even if it seems like injustice injustice is flourishing, I want to be upon your word. I want to build my life on your word. I want to hide more in you because I know you and I know you know me and I am yours. And I have the greatest title I could ever hope to ascribe for in this world, and that is, as we sang a few moments ago, a child of God in Jesus Christ. That's our comfort. That's our hope. That's our joy. The psalmist has done what Jesus said, the Sermon on the Mount. And when you pray, do not act like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who's unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It doesn't mean we don't pray in public or pray for others or pray in the context of church, but we do so with a desire to know and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, not for attention of man. The psalmist has received his reward of comfort, of a close presence with the Lord. That is what it means to be blessed. It is closeness with the Lord your God in the midst of trials or victories. That's the offering of blessing that you have to you this morning. Regardless of how you enter these doors, closeness to the Lord is yours in Jesus Christ. What a reason for celebration. What a reason of contrast with our life, with our lips. When we all believe and trust and obey God's word, we aren't earning blessing. Rather, we're remembering the Lord in his kindness. Remember the word of the Lord. That's Zion. That's Zion. Next steps. Next steps. Two questions for you. Number one, three areas. Of course, we could have listed far more. But busyness, pride, and individualism. Busyness, pride, and individualism. They often lead us to forget the Lord and therein to neglect His Word. I'm too busy. I don't have time for that. I don't have time to do that. Pride, I don't need that. Individuality, I'll take little bits that I want to take and create my own path. Those three areas often keep us from not only the people of the Lord, but the Lord by His Word. So my question to you, if you were to launch an attack upon yourself this week, which one of those three routes would you know you'd be most vulnerable? Where would you go after yourself? Busyness? Keep yourself even busier, possibly, to forget the Lord and His Word? Pride? I don't need that. I've got this. Or individualism? You decide. Where would you attack yourself? And do business with the Lord today, this week. Prepare yourself for the battle ahead. Remind yourself the Word of the Lord. Secondly, disciples are called to be and make disciples alongside of other disciples. This is how the Lord designed us in the community of the body of Christ. To be and make disciples one with another for the glory of God. So here's the second next steps question. I'm sure the Spirit has put many 
questions or thoughts of application on your heart, but here's a practical one. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that you know, young or old or similar age, that may feel forgotten, that you can contact, write a letter to, call, reach out to, make a visit to this week to remind them of the word of the Lord, to remind them of the voice of the great shepherd. Pray about it. Reach out. Be and make disciples. He's worthy of our life. We truly believe that Jesus is better, don't we? We truly do. Would you stand together as we sing and worship to our King?